The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hey, very warm welcome to this Tuesday edition of Scorebox. These are your headlines. Saudi Aramco beating estimates with a near 40% surge in third quarter net income as the oil giant reaps the benefits of rising global prices. The other side of the coin, though, President Biden urging oil majors to use their record profits to lower prices at the pump. But the BP CEO, Bernard Looney, tells CNBC at the Adipex summit that energy companies are putting their windfall gains to good use. Of course, it's quite understandable that at a time like this, people look at a company like ours and see the profits that we're making. Our job is to pay our taxes. Our job is to invest. The Dow dips for the first time in six days, but still posts its best month since 1976, while Asian markets start November in the green as the Fed meeting kicks off. Chinese factory activity idles in contraction territory as COVID restrictions ramp up, while a weak midpoint setting sends the yuan to its lowest level since the global financial crisis. And Elon Musk dissolves the board of Twitter and appoints himself CEO. CNBC learns of fear and distrust spreading through the social media firm as its new owner sets aggressive targets amid looming job cuts. Well, as you would expect, these are very large numbers from Aramco. Uh, and I'll just give you a little bit of a shopping list before we get into the weeds with um, our team, uh, Dan and Hadley, of course, on, on the ground in Adipec. Uh, net income rising to 42.4 billion US dollars in the quarter. That is up from 30.4 billion uh, net income one year previously. A whisper above expectations, so net income rising 39%. The group saying strong earnings and record free cash flow in the third quarter, reinforcing the proven ability to generate significant value through our low cost, lower carbon intensity upstream production and strategically integrated upstream and down. Well, that's the blurb from Armin Nasser as well. Um, very solid cash flow, the free cash flow. 45 billion US dollars up from 28.7 billion. I don't need to go through the shopping list anymore. They are very large numbers, but let's get some more detail on why this is significant, not only for Saudi, not only for the region, but of course uh, for the transatlantic relations as well. And I thought that was an excellent interview you conducted yesterday, Hadley, uh, with the US Energy Envoy. And these figures are just gonna put into focus the difficulty of that relationship between the United States uh, and Saudi Arabia. And of course, Hadley and Dan both join us from the Adipec conference in Abu Dhabi. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Steve. That's absolutely right. I mean, highlighting the difficulties within the Saudi-U.S. relationship is one of the main themes, frankly, that we've been hearing over the last day or so. No doubt we're going to continue to hear conversations about it going forward. And when I asked Amos Hashanah about it yesterday, he said, listen, we can agree to disagree on this, but you've got to look at the numbers. These record profits from Saudi Aramco. This is a country that, as you very well know, is now running a $40 billion budget surplus for the first nine months of the year. Interestingly enough, Q3 oil revenues were slightly down, I think off by eight and a half percent. And yet at the end of the day, Saudi Aramco, the health of Saudi Aramco is the health of the Saudi state. And I got to say, they're not doing half bad. Yeah, they're not doing half bad at all. 
So as Steve mentioned, Q3 net income up around 40% year on year to 42.4 billion. And the free cash flow number yeah. is incredible. 45 billion US dollars also paying dividends out. Q2, $18.8 billion this quarter, and then a Q3 dividend of 18.8 billion in the fourth quarter as well. And this comes as we continue to hear oil and gas CEOs talk about underinvestment in yeah. the industry. What we're going to see Aramco doing at the moment, it pumps about 12 million barrels of oil per day. It's investing significantly to ramp that up to 13 million barrels per day, betting that demand for crude and products is going to grow into the next decade. Pump to the last drop. To the very last drop, as the energy minister says, despite the ongoing investor pressure that we see for these companies to pivot more towards ESG and to uh, address the challenge of climate change as well. Absolutely. And I think what's also interesting about all of this, and of course against the backdrop of the record profits that we're seeing, you have the American presidents essentially calling out big oil for war profiteering at a time when, frankly, they are struggling themselves to decide how to manage this energy transition. I mean, you heard Bernard Looney yesterday speaking to me on that panel a little earlier in the headlines. You guys ran it, essentially saying that it's all about how this is managed going forward, and they need the help and the coordination of policymakers to make it happen. This is a last-ditch midterm election bid from an administration that is still struggling to get a handle on how to address high energy prices for the average everyday American no consumer. No doubt. And, and, but the, Amos Hochstein yesterday saying to me, he said, listen, we now have support from both sides of the aisle he for doesn't. what we're doing. No. Well, there you go. But that is the line of the administration. He doesn't because, look, uh, Congress isn't even in session. And if we saw the Republicans either taking one or both of those houses next week, then there is no way that an oil windfall profits tax is going to get passed. It would be a very tough sell. But at the end of the day, Chuck Grassley has come out actually on the side of the White House. And who would be managing that committee if, if the Republicans take the Senate? Mm. You know, the interesting so, thing is, though, a lot of these companies are probably going to push back on the prospect, as you would expect. Yeah. Um, and they're very sophisticated American companies, American companies, who would have the capability to probably avoid the tax, even if they were asked to pay it in the first place. Naughty. Naughty, Dan. That could never happen. Just saying. What do you, what do you mean? Um, look, both that's a fascinating uh, debate, and it's a debate that everyone's having, of course, from Washington to where you are in Abu Dhabi as well. Just want to make this a bit of a wider conversation, if I may, because I know you guys have been following what OPEC has done with its lifting of its 2030 and 2045 demand forecast. Now, that, that, that I don't want to put into context with something else I've been seeing as well. Uh, in its annual outlook, the group forecasts uh, global oil consumption rising by 13% or uh, to climb 13% by 2035 and warned any transition away from oil could, quote, be potentially dangerous. Well, dare I say it, they would say that, wouldn't they? Uh, the Petroleum Group also echoed industry concerns about chronic underinvestment in the sector. But I want to add that to something else that we, we've all been looking at as well, and that is the IEA um, and what they've been saying about the current situation. And very interesting that the IEA in recent days, as you both are very well aware, has said that we now... Uh, are seeing an acceleration of the peak in demand for fossil fuel. So whilst OPEC is talking about increases of demand into the 2030s and 2040s, Dr. Fatih Birol, who you both know incredibly well, is saying actually the actions of the OPEC plus group, i.e. their partner Russia, is accelerating people looking at the transition. So therein lies both sides of the debate, Hadley and Dan. I'm sure that's one which is very prevalent where you are. 
No doubt about it. I mean, they're calling essentially um, uh, OPEC for 12 trillion plus in investments. Mm -hmm. They say it's essential in order to keep the wheels of global growth greased. Mm. Um, and also interesting to hear Fatty Birol say the world is at a pivotal moment in energy history. He's probably not wrong there, to be honest. And I know he gets a lot of flack from the Saudi energy minister and those within the OPEC group. The Saudi uh, energy minister famously said that uh, he was operating in La La Land, you'll remember. Um, but he does make a good point. We are at an inflection point in global energy right now. Absolutely. And the, it's, the, it's the line reflected by the White House as well. But I want to bring in some sound that we got from Dan Jurgen a little bit earlier in the program. Listen in. Remember in 2019, people said oil demand had reached its peak. Now it's back to 2019 levels and you don't have Chinese demand back. Exactly. So that does tell you that there's a demand coming. And this issue of preemptive underinvestment is a theme that we've heard all through here at Atapac, that there's insufficient investment going in. And there are a number of reasons, including the pressures uh, from investors, signals from governments. But I, you know, you, the question is, are we looking Remember, the energy crisis didn't start on February 24th. It started uh, more than a year ago because the markets were so tight, and that problem needs to be addressed. As so often is the case, Dan Jurgen really calling it out there. I mean, the idea of we don't have a clear vision as to Chinese demand. We just don't know. Yeah, exactly. Especially with President Xi doubling down on the zero COVID strategy. The other interesting thing that we spoke to Dan Jurgen about was the December OPEC meeting. I think that's going to be key. Mm. Um, no insights on what to expect from that meeting, because if we did see OPEC perhaps assessing that macro conditions have deteriorated to the point that would justify another cut to production, then that is obviously going to drive an even bigger wedge between the US-Saudi relationship, which is something that we've also been focusing on here. Absolutely, but I think that going forward over the next couple of days, I think that, that war profiteering charge from mm. the US president is something you're gonna hear discussed quite a bit. I mean, certainly when I asked Vicki Holov about this yesterday, you know, are we, are we moving into an uncertain waters, if you will, at a time when the U.S. president, those at least on one side of the House, one side of Congress, are very much in favor of taxing these windfall profits. Uh, is that dangerous for the industry? And she said, listen, this is the wrong way to go about this. And what did you say so often this morning already, Dan? You cannot tax your way to higher production and lower prices. Are you a Republican? <laughs> Guys, we're going to hand it back over to you. Uh, thank you very much indeed, both of you. Um, just another update from Credit Suisse. I think we're going to get quite a lot. Of, good morning to you, by the way, Juliana. We haven't spoken today. Um, yeah, I think, look, we're going to get a lot of uh, drip feed of information as the roadshow just confirms the capital raising uh, and just various aspects of that. One point coming out from Credit Suisse today is that the proposed increase in share capital by the board of directors is expected to increase the group's CT1 ratio and support its strategic transformation. And as you quite rightly said to me off camera, uh, that really doesn't take as much forward. Uh, but the increase is to be carried out through two capital increases expected aggregate gross proceeds of approximately 4 billion Swissy, and that doesn't take us forward whatsoever. But they do plan to hold their EGM on the 23rd of November uh, for shareholders to approve the capital raising. Oh, I suppose we're now just in the execution phase of Credit Suisse's new plan. Uh, all right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking China. Chinese manufacturing data continues to linger in contraction territory. We'll break down the numbers after this and as record oil profits draw public and political scrutiny you can stay up to date with all the latest developments in the energy market by subscribing to the squawk box podcast wherever you get your podcasts
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to Squawk Box, everybody. Let's get a check on the trading action on Wall Street yesterday. As you can see here, all three of the majors ended the session lower. The tech-heavy Nasdaq leading the losses down about 1%. S&P 500 pulled back about 7 tenths of a percent, but still higher at the close yesterday. Worth noting that it was a week ago, despite the heavy sell-off in technology stocks last week. 10 out of 11 sectors were negative in the session, led to the downside by communication services while energy performed best. Uh, Over the Dow Jones, you can see that that index pulled back about four-tenths of a percent, or about 130 points. Now, putting this into context of the month overall, it was a strong month for U.S. equities. So even though we ended on a sour note, it has been an incredibly strong month for the U.S. market. S&P 500 gaining about 8% over the course of the month. The industrials-heavy Dow Jones gaining 14%, while the lagger, the standout, the Nasdaq, but still 3.9% higher. Of course, a major, major pullback last week in those big tech stocks is the reason we've seen that underperformance in the NASDAQ up just 3.9%. Now, breaking it down um, in a little bit more detail, here's the Dow, the course of the Dow Jones over the course of the month, 14% higher overall, and you can see the bulk of those gains came in the back third of the month. Now on to the fangs, the um, perhaps most, uh, certainly the the most in focus over the last week or so. Here's a look at the October moves. Alphabet gaining 11% over the course of the month, but a very different story for Amazon. That stock ended about 9% lower. Meta, the major underperformer, huge disappointment on the back of their earnings last week. Meta down 31% in October. So a lot of investors seem to have got that one wrong and been caught wrong-footed on the back of those numbers. Uh, Now on to the U.S. banks. The month of October was a positive one for the banking sector as investors brace for higher interest rates and what that means for net interest income moving forward. uh, A very strong month for the banks. J.P. Morgan rising 20%. B of A also rising about 20% or so. A little bit more muted gains in Morgan Stanley. Goldman Sachs up 17%. So major winners were those U.S. banking stocks. Now, U.S. Treasury yields, here's the picture for the month. Again, part of the reason we saw that rally in the banks is higher interest rates. And here's a picture for you of the progression of the U.S. 10-year note. We are The yields on the U.S. 10-year did end higher than we were at the beginning of the month. Currently, we're trading at just over 4% on that 10-year. Now, in terms of FX markets, the dollar index, so we yesterday saw the dollar index gain about 0.75% over the month of October. The dollar index actually came down slightly, down about 0.6%, and we are currently trading around 111 Doing a great job, by the way. What is it? It's most you've spoken since Friday with your <laughs> bad throat and your cold. It's a little under the weather, Steve, but this yeah. is getting me right back to it pretty quickly. Excellent. Well, a nice early start on Scorebots will do that for you. Thank you very much indeed. You're, you're sounding great so far. <laughs> it's, it's the other two and a half hours I'm worried about. Right. Uh, the Fed is expected to raise rates by 75 basis points this week as the U.S. Central Bank continues its fight against inflation. This amid ongoing debate about when the FOMC should look to smaller rate hikes in order to stave off a recession. Uh, At the last meeting in September, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said that at some point the bank would need to consider smaller rate moves and reassess the impact of inflation on the economy. 
Speaking to our colleagues in Singapore, the president of the IIF, that is Tim Adams, said the Federal Reserve faces a tough task in trying to slow down the U.S. economy. Well, in the U.S., consumer balance sheets are in pretty good shape, and they continue to spend. Consumers are opening their wallet, pulling out their credit cards and spending. They're complaining about it, and they're unhappy about inflationary pressures, but they continue to spend. Even the corporate sector, we saw fixed investment, business investment, really outperform in the last quarter. Balance sheets in the corporate sector are strong. So I think it's going to take a lot for the Fed to slow down this economy, but they're going to do their very best to do that. Niall O'Sullivan joins us now, CIO of multi-assets, EMEA at Neuberger Berman. Um, Niall, great to have you with us. Um, we were just recapping the uh, October moves for U.S. equities, and it was a strong month overall. And if you just looked at those monthly moves, you would think it was all, uh, you know, all, all positive. But we saw this massive sell-off uh, last week in U.S. technology, and uh, we had a downbeat session yesterday what is your overall take? Where do you think we go from here? Have we seen the bottom for assets or was that uh, October bounce going to prove to be a bear market bounce? Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Um, it was interesting. I saw a report yesterday that uh, I was born in 1976 and apparently it was the best month from the Dow uh, since 1976. So that probably means there was a lot going on. But having said that, our course case would be that this is probably more of a bear market rally at the moment. Your previous contributor talked about the ongoing movements um, by the Federal Reserve and other central banks to try and get um, inflation under control. We continue to believe that inflation is going to be more sticky than expected and that the central banks will have to continue to put their pressure on in order to arrest that. And that's likely to lead to more humps and bumps along the way. What do you think about Europe versus the U.S. here? I mean, clearly, to some degree, Europe is taking its cue from the Federal Reserve. Um, but how is that inflation picture vary across the regions? And, and how do you think about it from an asset perspective? I think that if you look at what's going on, there's dovish wings and hawkish wings in all central banks. But in particular, on the European side, it's only 18 months since President Lagarde was talking about the economy, you know, being some patient needs to stand on two crutches, one fiscal, one monetary. And they've had to take one of those crutches away over the last while. So there would be a view, I think, inside the European Central Bank that they they don't want to have to burn the village um, to save it. And I think they're looking for anything that would allow them to slow down uh, on the rate hiking side. However, I think the fear will be that the inflation will be stickier um, than they would be hoping for, and eventually they will have to keep rates rising. In that context, we think the ECB, much though they will want to try and slow down, probably will have to stay at it a little bit longer than the Fed will. Uh, and that's obviously going to be um, a little bit uh, more negative than might be expected for Eurozone bonds relative to US ones. Uh, no, you can stop showing off about how young you are. Some of us were born a lot earlier than you in the 70s. Uh, no, let's move on to my question as well. Uh, in terms of, though, the state of the European investment scenario versus the U.S. investment scenario, we know historically that the U.S. will always trade at a premium. There's all kinds of reasons for that, liquidity, ap investor appetite, what have you. How does that disparity look like now in terms of European assets, uh, in terms of their value compared with U.S. assets? I think that um, you're exactly right, obviously, when you look at that premium. For a while, you could sector adjust, and that would also um, maybe explain some of it. One of the things we've been looking at recently inside the team is to look at what happens to earnings in stressed scenarios. 
Uh, and it does look like the US companies remain a little bit more robust than a lot of their European counterparts in those situations. So at the margin, we would continue to probably be a little bit more favoring US over Europe. But I think it's probably more of the sector and the beta inside those sectors that we're more interested in in our portfolios at the moment. So we're focusing more on being up in quality, making sure that we have a little bit lower beta uh, and effectively favoring the fittest as we think there's likely to be, if not a recession, then certainly a a severe slowdown in growth. And that's going to feed through to favoring the strongest companies, as as you folks know, in a recession, a recession like scenario, the strongest companies tend to do better. Yeah, and, and that's wise words, Niall. But, but in terms of what that means for the growth sector, well, actually, I don't know what it means for the growth sector. It's, it's a sector that's been pummeled, perhaps rightly in many people's views, as we saw with the quality tech names last week. They're still getting pummeled to a certain degree as well. Where do the quality tech names fit into your scenario? So I think there's a, there's a, there's a huge point on your night that there. So we definitely prefer value over growth at the moment. I think what's really going on, though, is the the market changes, interest rates rise. The definition of what is growth is changing. So growth used to be the earnings way off in the future, really low interest rates. You can discount that back to today and support a value. Those sorts of stocks, the really speculative ones, are finding it more difficult. Uh, Stocks that have more value today are being favored relative to those. However, we would be on the watch out for a number of the companies that have probably been beaten up too hard. You know, a really good example is maybe somewhere like growth equity. A lot of people were looking to invest in that in 2021. It's been absolutely pummeled since then. If you liked it in part of your portfolio, then you probably must really like it now. So I think there are opportunistic um, bargains that can be sought there. But I think using a value lens to separate the wheat from the chaff will be rewarded around about here. Yeah, how are you playing the bond market at the moment? I see you've used the word vigilantes a couple of times. They're getting a little bit of a hiding last week or so, but um, where do they stand now? I think that, you know, and and it goes back to the point I made at the outset, we think that inflation is likely to mean that the central banks are going to have to keep going at it. Uh, And so that's likely to be negative in the short term. That being said, you're looking at a situation where you have significant yields in your bond portfolio for the first time in a long time. And so what we're beginning to do is look at where is there are pockets of value. You're looking looking at somewhere like pockets of the high yield universe where you can see returns of seven, eight, nine percent potentially as part of your portfolio. So what we're seeing is that particularly in shorter dated credit, shorter dated high yield, there are opportunities to add those to your portfolio and actually get a return from your fixed income portfolio for the first time in years. Good to see you today, Niall. Um, thank you very much indeed for your words. Really enjoyed our interview. Uh, Niall O'Sullivan, uh, the CIO of Multi-Assets, uh, EMEA at Neuberger Berman, who is a sprightly 46-ish. Right, uh, moving on for more on how, do you know some people on the show, you, you plug them for years about how old they are <laughs> and they never tell you unless they get it very badly wrong occasionally. <laughs> that feels yeah. like a charged comment. I'm curious. Who no, there was a lady about. who uh, I worked with for many years on this show mm. uh, who is no longer with CNBC and she refused steadfastly for years <laughs> to tell me her age. And I worked for a long, long time mm. uh, until foolishly she once told me what, uh, what year of she was in the Chinese calendar. Now, unless she was in her late 50s, I'd kind of worked it out quite quickly that she was uh, <laughs> a certain age. There you go. Uh, for more on how the market performed in October and how stocks are shaping up ahead of the Fed decision, uh, check out CNBC.com. Let's take a look at Asian markets. The overnight trade has been positive. All of the major indices there trading in the green. Clearly the standout Hong Kong, you've got the Hang Seng up more than 5% overnight, so leading the gains. 
Australia's central bank has raised interest rates by 25 basis points to 2.85%, the highest level since 2013. The decision was widely expected following the Reserve Bank's move last month to shift away from half-point hikes. The RBA also revised its inflation outlook up to 8% and said it will continue with policy tightening in the coming months. Manufacturing growth across Asia was sluggish in October as fears of a global recession mount. Business surveys showed factory output in South Korea and Taiwan shrank last month, while Japanese manufacturing PMI uh, fell to 50.7. Interesting, all those declining data, concern about data, and yet the oil price is, is pretty robust. Uh, Chinese Kaishin manufacturing PMI was 49.2 in October, above expectations but still firmly in contraction territory. Sam has plenty more. Good morning, Sam. How are you? Very good morning to you, Stephen Julian. I'm very well, thank you. Uh, nice to speak to you this morning. And of course, this is just further confirmation, as you say, of the profound impact that this zero COVID policy is having on the manufacturing sector over in China. Of course, this is the Taishin survey. It does look at the smaller and private firms over in China. It also captures a greater share of those exporters. It actually came in above those market expectations at 49.2. Interestingly, the official numbers and the private survey going in opposite directions, but still both hitting 49. 49.2. So that is in contractionary territory. And that just certainly highlights the, of course, headwinds that the economy is facing right now with this zero COVID policy. Of course, we've been talking about these workers fleeing these COVID restrictions over at the iPhone factory. We've also seen these distressing scenes over at Shanghai Disneyland with people uh, being locked inside the gates there, but also factory activity uh, being weighed down by the domestic picture as well. We've got this sluggish property sector. And of course, we do know that external demand has also been weakened perhaps that has got something to do with why we did, of course, see a week of fixing for the UN midpoint this morning by the Chinese Central Bank. There has been some suggestion that perhaps they are tolerating some weakness there, maybe to help out some of those exports. We actually saw the Chinese currency hitting near a 15-year low against the greenback this morning. It actually has recovered. It's actually heading in the other direction. Now, we are seeing some strength coming through for that Chinese currency right now, uh, sitting at uh, 726.72. The offshore currency also firming up seven tenths of a percent at 728.44 at this stage but in terms of the data what we got today it does certainly paint a picture of the manufacturing sector right now in terms of what we saw across the broad it was pretty consistent uh, in terms of the hit that that uh, zero covid policy did take to output uh, and also of course those new orders both of those fell uh, the supplier delivery times that we we're talking about yesterday that also widened at the smaller and private firms as well actually these companies highlight the difficulties in transporting those goods overseas. So no doubt uh, that is painting a, a certainly uncertain picture of the uh, logistics bottlenecks at the moment over in China. No doubt uh, bad news for the trading picture globally. We also that, uh, saw that there was some pressure on jobs as well. The survey actually saying uh, that they lowered headcount and no doubt that is uh, raising some uncertainties about uh, the labour market of course in China. We have got youth unemployment uh, at a record high. We will get an idea of how these smaller and private firms are holding up in the services sector, guys, when we get that data out on Thursday. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.